Hi, I'm Alex Mozed, and you're joining us here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Uh, we've got a, a number of interesting topics to go over today. First off, taking a taking a look over at China, um, where I, I actually just left the lunch where our president Donald Trump was speaking at um, at the New York Economic Club, and um, while he was saying that China is experiencing, I guess. It's worst economic year in 50 years or a long time. Um, this news actually at least says that the tech monopolies in China are still doing pretty well. Uh, Alibaba's Singles Day. So if you don't know what Singles Day, it's kind of like Black Friday or what has now turned into Cyber Monday. Um, or it's kind of like Amazon's Prime Day, which happened over the summer, uh, where Amazon also had record-breaking uh, sales on their Prime Day. And as a result of Amazon creating its own Prime Day, you've seen now a bunch of other retailers pile onto that um, that one big shopping day. So um, what Singles Day in China is 11-11. So it's kind of four singles. Um, and it's kind of like, uh, I guess, the reverse version of Valentine's Day. And so you're single, so you just go buy a bunch of stuff, something like that. And it's the biggest shopping day on the planet. So basically, Alibaba said they sold over... $38 billion worth of goods in one day. Uh, the prior year had been $30 billion. So that's over a 20% increase. Pretty good for them. Um, keep in mind, Alibaba overall does over $800 billion in GMV annually. They don't regularly disclose what they sell on an annual basis. Um, but this is certainly a, a pretty sized chunk of that $800 plus billion. Um, as a result, you've also seen other companies like JD.com and Pinduoduo, um, which we've covered regularly on the show, also have their own version of a singles day, big discount shopping spree. You have King Kardashian, who was launching a new uh, cosmetic line in China on singles day. So um, there's a lot of buzz around this. And um, it was a win. It was a win all around for Alibaba and for the other uh, e-commerce players that have kind of copied, you know, piled on to, to selling stuff on this day. Um, so, you know, despite what's happening on maybe on a macroeconomic level in China, consumers are still buying on Singles Day. Um, so looking at the country adjacent to China, uh, Japan's SoftBank, you've probably, if you've been on Twitter, and if you go on Twitter and you punch in SoftBank WeWork, you'll basically see these people uh, and by these people, I mean SoftBank getting trolled because uh, they're making fun of these slides. And um, everyone's making fun of these slides. You can kind of see here some, some of these different things, right? Basically, um, increase profit, reduce OPEX, and then, you know, bam, uh, money. And there's another, I, I took another kind of consolidated photo here, which helps to sum up some of the major takeaways. Um, gross, low gross profit minus high OPEX equals negative EBITDA. Thanks, SoftBank. Um, and now this is the improvement. Increased gross profit, lower OPEX, and increased EBITDA. Um, and then the bottom one is the hypothetical turnaround of there's their EBITDA, which is negative. And then now in the future, that's the um, turning point here where now we go up and to the right. The interesting thing is there's no x-axis on this chart. It's just kind of like a, I don't know, you know, it's whatever timeline you want to prescribe to it. Now, 
to give uh, Masa, who runs uh, SoftBank and the Vision Fund, uh, credit, okay, and to defend them, these slides are supporting materials that were presented in SoftBank's earning call. And so there's a lot of context that is spoken against each one of these slides, right? It's not just, this isn't their whole plan uh, summed up very simply on these slides. Um, so I think that said, I think SoftBank, knowing how many investors or how many, uh, sorry, not investors, portfolio companies, how many startups that they have met with and probably you know, ridiculed or provide harsh feedback to the founders or to the broker that was trying to raise money from SoftBank because they said, well, you know, you just didn't do a good job presenting your materials or your information or making a good argument as to why we should invest. It's a double-edged sword and clearly it's coming back to bite them because they should know, they should expect that if you're going into a public quarterly earnings call and these are the slides that you're projecting, yes, they make sense with the context of you talking to the slide. But this is 2019 and the slide taken out of context, which is literally what happens every single day in 2019, things are taken completely out of context and then memes are made out of them. And so now SoftBank is the victim of massive memes. And honestly, they should have seen that coming. I mean, they're not idiots, clearly. They're not oversimplifying the WeWork situation. They're very smart investors. They're very smart operators. Um. They have a very successful uh, business called SoftBank in China. They also are a huge owner of T-Mobile. Um, so when you look at their actual total return here, they break out uh, all of the different holdings. They break out um, where their income is coming from between SoftBank, or sorry, Sprint. They're a big owner of Sprint. Well, now these two things are merging together. Now, here's the interesting thing. Because SoftBank became a majority owner, of WeWork, now WeWork's books and, and the money they're, they're putting into WeWork now is showing up on their financials. And they put money into WeWork, not just from the Vision Fund, but from SoftBank, the corporate entity. And so um, it was really interesting how all of this had to come together um, and how they're ha having to present all this information uh, in their quarterly earnings. For the rest of the Vision Fund, the Vision Fund doesn't necessarily have to say that um, we are an owner in this and we have to represent your financials. So yeah, these are the WeWork slides here. Um, and then they had to cover the write-down, right? Now, here's the thing about WeWork. Um, so they were doing about $1.7 billion in revenue, I believe. And... They, I think, are currently valued. They're currently valued in the single, single digit billions of dollars. It's hard to say exactly where they're valued because it's basically WeWork decided. I mean, sorry, it's basically SoftBank deciding what they're valued at. But let's look at a comparable. Let's look at Regus. Are you familiar? Regus has been doing office kind of co work, co sharing, uh, desk sharing for years and years and years, long before WeWork. And this business, um, it's a public company has been doing in 2018 did about 2.34 uh, million euros in revenue, generated about 177 million euros in profit. So you could say it's about a couple hundred million dollars in profit, uh, about maybe $2.5 billion in revenue. And if we look at their market cap, they're valued at about $3.5 uh, billion. So 
you say to yourself, okay, um, they have a less than 2x revenue multiple. They have a maybe like 15, 15 to 20, 15, 17x EBITDA multiple. Um, and then if you run those numbers on over to WeWork, and let's say you're generous, let's say you give WeWork a 2x revenue multiple, that puts them at what, 3.5 billion dollars valuation. Maybe you give WeWork a 3x revenue multiple. Okay, now they're around five billion dollars. That's the latest rumor. I originally had heard that WeWork was around nine billion. Now I heard maybe it's down to five billion. But that would roughly give WeWork a 3x revenue multiple valuation. I guess they are growing a lot. So I think they 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 have a much more aggressive growth than Regus, but um I'd still say there's definitely a premium on WeWork, despite not being anywhere near profitable. Uh, but then you basically have to say to yourself, okay, finally, they're in the ballpark of being valued like a real estate company, which was what the problem was the whole time. They're being valued like a tech company when they were a real estate company. Um, so now that, uh, that veil has popped. They've dropped back down to earth. They're being valued kind of as basically like an ultra high growth real estate company. And now this is more realistic, right? You're saying, do I believe that they can keep up their growth? Do I believe that they can get control over their costs? And does that justify a premium uh, of a real estate multiple compared to these other comparable businesses that are profitable but don't have as much growth? That is a much more realistic setting and landscape to be evaluating the WeWork investment decision versus where it was at about what, like $40 billion, something crazy. That I think is a great example of really transparency, uh, the forcing function of, of being a listed company working and providing that transparency, letting the broader investment community make a decision as opposed to one or two ultra dominant shareholders or investors like WeWork um, driving the valuation up and uh, kind of arbitrarily doing so in the process. So uh, it's kind of good to see this. Whole, it's a healthy process. Going back to my conversation uh, from last week with Dara, the CEO of Uber, that doesn't mean, it, it certainly has dampened tech companies' valuations that are public and losing money. Uh, but it doesn't mean that a tech company like Uber, a platform company like Uber, rather, um, is astronomically uh, away or astronomically valued much higher than what they should be valued, like what happened to WeWork, right? Uber is a platform company. They have legitimate demand and supply side network effects, not just in ride sharing, but also in Uber Eats and their other kind of other bets categories. And they're classified correctly. It's really then just a question of how much of a premium do you put on that high growth tech platform business type of company. For WeWork, the problem was they were being put in the completely wrong bucket of multiples and, and valuations. Uh, now they're in a much more appropriate bucket. Okay. Uh, let's see. There's an article. There's there, this, this kind of uh, person came out. I, I guess they're kind of a, like a Google whistleblower at Google saying, hey, Google, um, you have all these health records and... This is bad. Um, and basically, it was with Ascension Health, which I believe is a top five healthcare provider in the United States. And they're saying, hey, Google actually has access to all of this electronic uh, health record inf information, um, names, full details of millions of people, 
millions and millions of records, um, yada, 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 you know, and Google's doing this to create better products for the healthcare provider, create AI, train their algorithms, write more intelligent products for the physicians in the practice and so on and so forth, right? Google's not opening up this data like Apple Health can do with the patient's permission to open it up to other third-party developers. That's not what Google's doing. Google is using it purely within Google for their different products, AI, et cetera, to create value for the healthcare system. Um, if you think this is a problem, well, let me break it to you. You're probably going to have a problem with just about every healthcare system in the United States. Because if they are not doing something like this with Google, I can pretty much guarantee you they're doing it with someone else. Now, there's a whole range of who that could be. I would throw pharma companies into that bucket. Absolutely. And other tech companies uh, that have their own different initiatives. Um, I'd probably say Microsoft has similar arrangements. Again, I don't have uh, any kind of hard facts on this, but... I'm pretty strongly able to say here, Microsoft, Apple certainly has been doing things beyond just the consumer patient facing side of Apple health. Um, so this isn't just Ascension in a bubble here that's doing this as a one-off. And I can also guarantee you that Google has similar arrangements with other hospitals too. I don't really think this is a bad thing. Um, if I guess you could make the argument that they should scrub things like names um, and, 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 you know, kind of basic information like that. Um, I, I, think, I think there's an argument there. But the overall uh, model here of saying, um, hey, we are a hospital. There's value in this data. And that's not our expertise. We're not very good at technology. And we're not very good at... Um, building AI and all of these new ways to look at providing value to who? To our physicians. And you really need to, the physicians need this stuff. And as we've spoken about, the, one of the biggest problems in the healthcare industry is a reticence to share data, is an overzealous uh, body of incumbents that feel like there should be no data sharing. Um, so yes, while this kind of quote-unquote whistleblower might think that they're doing something very good. I actually think that this might have more harm than good because this plays to the fear that the incumbents in the healthcare industry have preyed upon for years and years and years. That's why the two largest EMR companies, Epic and Cerner, which control over 50% of the EMR market, are still operating like a company in the 1990s, right? They're operating like Oracle pre-Salesforce, right? It's all on-premise software. There's no data sharing. There's no common way to open up your data, you know, through centralized APIs like Salesforce has to an app marketplace. If you want to get access to uh, these hospitals' data, you need to do one-off integrations with every hospital. And that's expensive for the hospital to do that, which means you got to pay the hospital because the hospital just can't afford this stuff. These hospitals operate on ultra thin margins. There's a lot of overconsolidation in the industry. There's all these other things going on. Hospitals are in a tough spot. So I guarantee you there's money involved going from tech companies like Google to hospitals, pharma companies to hospitals to get access to this data. Because yes, selfishly, it helps 
that company, whether it's tech company or pharma company, improve the products or improve the research uh, or improve the IP or the AI or whatever it is that they're working on internally. But it also now provides value down to the physician, which ultimately gets passed down to the patient. Um, so, look, um, I think we have a way too aggressive kind of just stigma in the United States around um, uh, that there needs to be a complete lack of data sharing in the healthcare industry. Uh, I think there is some legitimacy around like shielding names and that kind of stuff um, from these records. But overall, this is a good thing. And, and this stuff needs to be happening. Oh, and by the way, you wouldn't have to have these crazy one-off deals with these hospitals if you actually had a modern uh, electronic record system, thanks to Epic and Cerner. But the reason why Google and pharma companies and all these places have to do these crazy one-off deals is because... All these hospitals are beholden to these crazy EMR companies that deliberately put these impediments in their way for this exact thing called data sharing, right? So um, I, it, it's, a, it's getting a lot of buzz. I kind of think it's a little overbaked. Um, similarly, Disney Plus launched today. And, uh, you know, I guess people are freaking out because there's bugs. I could have guaranteed you with 110% certainty that the Google, the, the Disney Plus system would crash or there'd be some kind of glitch. Whenever you're rolling out a product to millions of people on day one and the, and the thing has never encountered this level of usage all at once, yeah, it's not going to go smoothly. I mean, it's going to happen. The whole point is that how well is, is Disney and the team there prepared to respond? to outages, bugs, glitches, right? It's bugs and glitches are natural. They're going to happen. It's really a matter of how do you process that? How quickly do you respond? Um, what's the severity of the bugs? Uh, and so on and so forth. Now, Disney has spent billions and billions of dollars in this infrastructure. And now there's reports of 7,300 problems with Disney Plus and all these kinds of things. When you're any QA department, you're going to rate these bugs in level of, you know, is this a critical issue, um, a severe issue, you know, a, a medium priority issue. The things that literally take down the system, okay, those are bad. Those need to get fixed ASAP. Is it a big problem that you had critical issues that brought down the system on day one where you're introducing this to not just millions, but probably tens of millions of people? No, I actually don't think it's that big of a deal. Um It'll get fixed or it should get fixed pretty quickly. The critical issues certainly should. They should have a lot of redundancy built into the system so that if some things break, they're prepared for that. They, they built this thing. They didn't build all this from scratch, right? They built, they, they bought the like major league gaming company or something, which was doing videos. They bought a company that was already doing video streaming and built all this on top of that. So it's not like, um, this is a brand new spanking system that hasn't seen the light of day. It has seen the light of day. It is operational. It is a multi-billion dollar company. It just hasn't encountered this level of throughput, probably tens of millions of people uh, all at the same time. So you could also say it's kind of a good problem to have. So interesting stuff there. I think NetNet Disney Plus is going to do pretty well. Um, as we've spoken about last week, then a million over a million people signed up going into today's launch. And they've really done a bang up job on um, 
on the marketing, the tie up with Verizon and all the different things that they've been doing. Um, and not to mention, I think 20 plus original content shows that they've developed in the past year, year and a half to prepare for this around these mega brands. It's just, I think they're going to do quite well. And it's a great price point at $7 a month. And it's free if you are on Verizon. Okay, I'll stop talking about Disney+. Plus. I'm getting it. I'm very excited. Um, okay, what is a venture studio? So I've spoken in, uh, a little bit about what Applico does. But basically what we're seeing is we're seeing a huge swath of opportunity to uh, build startups. Historically, startups have been built by a team of entrepreneurs. They start a company and they raise money from VCs. And hopefully they have a big exit, either going public or getting acquired. What venture studios are doing are saying, I'm going to bring together a group of founders and, and different people, with different skill sets to form an initial team uh, to give them a, 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 a direction and a uh, thesis around a new startup opportunity. I'm going to give them the resources to go execute upon that, whether it's the human resources, whether it's capital whether it's maybe some um, IP around technology or data or other kind of value-added service. And I'm going to now um, help launch this business and, and, and set this new business on its way. And I'll um, figure out some incentive structures. But basically for the founders and the team that's starting this new business, the risk-reward scenario for those individuals is not as aggressive as it would be if you were just an entrepreneur with a couple of buddies starting a business from scratch, right? Where the risk reward scenario is ultra extreme, right? Huge amount of risk, huge amount of reward, 99 point whatever percent chance of failure. In this model, it's saying, I'm going to pay you a much better uh, cash compensation. You are going to have some equity upside uh, in the business if it's successful, but it's not going to be as meaningful as if you were to just start a business from scratch and completely be on your own and have to get all your funding on your own. And I'm giving you, I'm helping to solve a lot of these problems and, 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 and help you get a better balance uh, for these kinds of different variables to start this new business. Okay. Um, so you've seen venture studios for probably 10 years now. Uh, there's kind of two buckets of venture studios. Historically, the venture studios that we've seen for 10 years, um, Garrett Camp, one of the co-founders of Uber, launched a venture studio called Expa. And that was kind of the traditional version of the venture studio where what you're, you're like a, a startup incubator, you're, you're launching these businesses off into the wild, pretty much explicitly as I just described it, right? Um, you give money, you give resources, you may give maybe some IP, you give a direction, a uh, strategic direction, and then you let that team go and hopefully uh, thrive. Now, what you've seen in the past few years is you've seen the venture studio model uh, shift towards working with enterprises. And I think that over the next 20 years, you're going to see a huge amount of opportunity saying, hey, if I can tap into this value, um, it could be customers that you don't treat very well or you don't effectively serve today. Uh, it could be suppliers that you have access to. It could be your initial inventory. It could be data about what people are buying and what their interests are. It could be different value-added services, your brand and trust that you have with your different users already in the ecosystem, just your knowledge about the industry, if it's a regulatory environment or, or whatever it may be. And you say, hey, if I was to go take the traditional venture studio model and partner up with a large enterprise that has all of these untapped assets, would I uh, help 
bring a much higher chance of success to the traditional venture studio model? Um, and the answer is, yes, you would. Now, uh, the hard part is how do you actually tap into these assets in a large enterprise, right? Because they have them. It's a whole other thing to be able to A, identify them, B, tap into them, and then C, actually execute, pull it all together, oh, and build a new startup business from scratch. Kind of a tough thing to pull off. So, but you're starting to see um, venture studios building startups with corporations more and more these days. Um, you're starting to see some venture studios uh, take different approaches to doing this. But I think the key in the key model for success is to say, how do you have the right stakeholders? at the traditional enterprise involved to tap into those untapped resources and assets. Because that's the key thing. If you're able to work in collaboration with the traditional enterprise um, and they're excited about an opportunity in their industry, they would love to own or, um, or, or be a large LP in a new startup in their space, much more so than just say being a minority shareholder, right? Um, then, that can make a lot of sense. The problem is tapping into those resources, right? The large enterprise might be able to cut you a check. The large enterprise might be able to help seed some of the capital to get this business going. Um, but to tap into those resources from the traditional enterprise, that's very difficult because these traditional enterprises are busy and they have process and they have a certain way of doing things. And if you want to actually then get other people in a large enterprise to work with you, they have a full-time job. They're compensated not to help you out. They're compensated to make what they're working on successful. And they have KPIs against that. They have team members against that. They have a lot of different people that depend upon them. And believe it or not, they're actually very busy delivering on that. So how do you affect change internally at a large traditional enterprise to get access to all of these things that if you could get access to them, you could be wildly successful building this new startup over here outside of the core enterprise um, and be much have a much higher chance of success than if you were just to go build this startup from scratch uh, on your own, either in a traditional venture studio model um, or just as a bunch of founders doing their own thing and, and, and trying to figure it out as they go. Now, um, unfortunately, what you have seen happen and what you will continue to see happen is that these uh, kind of corporate venture studios get the short end of the stick where um, the traditional enterprise promises that you can get access to all of these things, but then you never get access to them. And by the way, when you work with a large enterprise and if they do contribute money into something like this, you can bet that there's going to be more strings attached than if you were to go to maybe a more traditional VC you know, venture funding path. So that money comes with strings, and you better recognize that. Um, the hope is that it comes with strings, but there's a lot more value than there is uh, either process or um, different different stakeholders that you that you need to liaison with, you need to work with, um, since they are part of this new venture, right? Um, so finding that balance is really tough. And it's something that um, myself and the team here at Applico has been working on for about four or five years. 
Um, we've uh, had some very strong successes. We've had some failures that we've been able to learn a lot from. Um, but that said, if you can get over that hump, there's huge, 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 huge value. Uh, and I think that'll be the next 20 years of, of, of seeing such a wide swath of untapped value in traditional enterprises. And if you can access it, if you can tap into it, then you'll absolutely see the benefit and the reward in terms of your hit rate of building successful startups. Um, so more on that to come. Last topic is we've had a couple questions come in over the past few days. So I, wanna, I wanted to address these. Um, one of them is uh, from our, our friend Homer on YouTube. Um, Homer said, hey, Alex, in, in, in the end of the book, towards the end of the book, this book, uh, we talk about Adian. Adian is a payment, pla uh, not a payment platform. It's a payment pipe um, that has been very successful. It's a public company. Uh, if you haven't heard of Adian, you've definitely heard of Stripe. And so Adian has raised $266 million, I think pre-IPO. Um, and then they now went public and uh, are doing very well for themselves. Overall, I think it's a very strong business. Stripe is also a very strong business. We, we cover them at the end of the book because we talk about saying, hey, if you, don't, if you aren't going to build or buy uh, or be a platform, there's still a lot of ways that you can capture platform opportunity. ADN being one of those examples where they work very heavily with a lot of platform companies. We talk in the book about their work with Uber and a bunch of different other kind of marketplace oriented platform companies that need to scale to a lot of different countries. And if you think about the, the way that money flows through a marketplace, um, it's very different, particularly service marketplaces, right? So I get money from a customer. I then have these, I need to now um, I have a take rate. So, you know, effectively that money earned goes to the driver. I have a take rate that takes that money back to Adian. There's then different fees that you need to chunk out for insurance or taxes or these kinds of things. It's a very different flow of money, which means that you need a different product. If you are an Uber, um, you need a different payment provider, technology solution provider to integrate into your business. We spoke, I think maybe last week, Chime is the fintech disruptor bank, which went down um, because one of their uh, essentially kind of fintech pipe providers, uh, their service went down, which meant you couldn't withdraw money from your Chime account. I don't think you can make maybe debit card purchases. And so what I was saying is you need to have redundancy. Um, and so... I bet Uber uses both Adian and Stripe, but you need to have specific product lines built out for platform companies. And that's something that Stripe and Adian did a very good job of doing, of building products specifically for marketplace businesses, right? So they understood the rising tide of platform companies, particularly, say, service marketplaces, and built specific payment products for those kinds of new business models. And so that's what we talk about at the end of the book, where there's a lot of opportunity to build linear products, like I would classify ADN as a SaaS product, uh, for platform companies. So uh, we equate it to the analogy of, you know, you're providing the uh, pickaxes for the gold rush, right? You're providing all the tools for all of these different marketplace businesses to be successful. You might not know which company is going to be the next Uber, but you have a really good payment product for marketplace businesses, and you know that 
marketplace businesses are on the rise. And as long as we have the best payment product for marketplaces, we're, you know, we should see a lot of growth with this product, right? Makes sense. And I think ADN has established itself as one of the top two kind of up and coming new uh, payment processor solutions uh, for these kinds of uh, different, especially many platform companies. I think they work with Airbnb, we list a bunch in the book, and I'm sure that client list is only expanded. Um, so they are still a linear company. They're not a platform company, just to make that clear. Doesn't mean that they have a bad business. It just means they don't have, um, in this case, they don't really have <coughs> a demand side network effect, right? They have, they integrate with the companies, but they don't own the, the customer at the end of that equation. Square is another example of this, um, where Square has their payment solution. They had tried to go and be a platform company where they bought Caviar, which is the food uh, delivery marketplace, which, which they actually just resold. Um, and they were trying to do different things to connect the, the payer, the consumer, with the merchant, the producer in that case. That didn't really take off for them. Square is another example of a, a linear company um, led by the same CEO as Twitter. The other, the other um, question that came in was basically talking about kind of uh, bad actors on platforms and how you have um, noticing more information coming about a platform participants gaming the gaming the platforms to increasingly scam customers. Um, so he talks about Amazon here and Airbnb here. So just last week, I was with Brian. Um, at the DealBook conference where he, Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, where he's talking about what they're doing to verify uh, land, you know, um, uh, homeowners who are listing properties on Airbnb and they have a goal. By the end of next year, 100% of the listings on Airbnb are going to be verified. Um, and they have a, a few different ways that they plan on uh, living up to that. But yeah, you see a lot of these kinds of games spent on the supply side of the equation. So we've spoken about many times that really, in many cases, the supply side network effect can be uh, the most important aspect of the platform at different stages of the platform, right? Um, once they get to monopoly scale, then you see a lot of suppliers trying to skirt the rules. And so one of the four core functions of a platform business is rules and standards. And what rules and standards do is they help to... Um, keep basically good users in and help to incentivize good behavior and weed out bad behavior. So you want to keep bad actors out. There's two parts of rules and standards. One is a gating mechanism. So who do you let into the ecosystem for both consumers and producers? Um, and so for, uh, for a producer, that could be like, hey, you're a seller on Amazon. I need your business tax ID. I need different business credentials. I need to verify you on Airbnb, right? That's a gating mechanism can you enter the ecosystem or not? And then there are different ways to regulate usage. So regulating entry into the platform and then regulating usage while you're in the platform. Um, and so one of the examples that we use in the book was chat roulette, where if you don't regulate usage, then the behavior in the platform, in that case, chat roulette, kind of just evolves into very murky waters and it's not very pleasurable experience anymore. I'm not going to list out exactly what happened, but if you know about chat roulette, you understand what I'm talking about. Um, so you need to regulate usage, which means you need to weed out bad actors. You need to set guidelines for behavior. That's where we've seen 
players like Facebook and all the content platforms out there get into a lot of trouble trying to find those lines. What's abusive or hateful content that I should remove or I should penalize users for? And then what's a violation of free speech? And where are those lines? It's very difficult. Um, on Amazon, there's stories that, so in the US, I think, I think it was canceled, but you could ship something from China to the US for like a dollar. And the US was subsidizing those shipping fees. There, so there's many stories about um, millions of Chinese sellers that wanted to build status on Amazon that would ship you like a bobby pin. <laughs> um, but they would ship it to an address. They would claim your address and then they would write themselves a really nice review. And it would cost them like a buck fifty. The whole thing. Because we had this crazy kind of subsidized shipping thing with China. Um, so literally millions of packages were being shipped to the U.S., and, 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 and these people in like California or Arizona, right, kind of close to China, were getting like some of them five to 10 shipments a day of these like bogus little packages with, uh, with hairpins or like uh, pantyhose or, you know, really cheap stuff to just ship and then write yourself a good review. So um, you've seen scams like that. You've seen scams where people are trying to... Um, you know, uh, uh, on Airbnb, uh, uh, get access or list properties um, that are fraudulent or, um, or, or aren't necessarily up to spec or aren't accurately being portrayed. You see this all the time on Amazon, not just for kind of rigging reviews, but you see this in terms of selling counterfeit products or maybe um, products that are expired. You know, it's the actual product, but maybe it's a, it's a perishable or a semi-perishable product. Um, if you if you're in the dog industry, pet industry, that's Chewy, the the linear competitor to Amazon. That's one of their biggest things. Is you know Amazon. A lot of the big food, uh, pet food manufacturers don't sell directly on Amazon. So you have these third party sellers that are selling product um, against the rules to Amazon, and some of that stuff could go bad. Um, so how do you enforce quality? Uh, in that ecosystem. And it's very hard. There was that Wall Street Journal article a few weeks ago, which we covered, where they documented thousands of products that are fake or counterfeit um, or just, you know, incorrect that are being sold on Amazon. So how do you weed that stuff out? And so part of it is humans. And then part of it is AI. Part of it is letting the crowd and the consumer um, help you verify that. So leaving reviews. This is what Brian Chesky from Airbnb said. So an Airbnb employee isn't going to hand verify every uh, person listing a property on Airbnb by the end of 2020. They just wouldn't be able to do it. He said they're going to do some stuff on their own. They're going to use AI for a chunk of it. They're going to let the community um, provide much. They're going to really prompt the users to provide much more thorough reviews when they stay somewhere. Um, so it's a mixture of factors, you know, partially kind of leveraging the crowd, leveraging your own workforce, the platform's workforce, and then leveraging AI or machine learning to try and track patterns uh, that might be fraudulent and then, you know, flag those and let then the, the human at the platform company review them more closely, these kinds of things. Um, there's a variety of different tactics that you need to use, but if you don't put these things in place, then the community will naturally uh, devolve or get diluted into a not so good environment. And uh, these bad actors will continue to then go unchecked and will continue to 
um, erode trust and um, uh, that faith that the customer has in the platform. Now, the platforms will also do things like with Amazon, right? Have very generous terms with the consumer where if you did buy something and it didn't actually meet the product requirements, Amazon more likely than not is just going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say, sure, return the product, no questions asked, no problem. And they actually put that penalty back onto the supplier. So that means that the good suppliers that might have actually delivered to you the correct thing can fall victim to consumers that take advantage of the system and might be filing fraudulent claims uh, on their end. And sometimes you get, if you order a heavy item on Amazon, um, there have been reports about how Amazon or, or the, um, the, uh, the merchant won't even bother to have you ship it back because the shipping is so expensive. They'd rather just send you a new one. All this kind of crazy stuff. So it's a constant back and forth effort. And um, what it can mean is that these bad actor suppliers can actually uh, damage things for the good suppliers that then have to take a hit because the platform is then going to give much more onus or trust or convenience to the consumer to help them weed out these bad actors. Um, so it's a really interesting mix and it's something that, that never ends. Um, it's an ongoing thing. You've seen Facebook have to invest billions and billions of dollars in regulating what content goes on the platform. And, and that's something that Zuckerberg has, has spoken about very clearly uh, that they were going to need to take a charge, a pretty big charge to, to do these kinds of things. So um, yeah, great questions. Please keep them up. Let us know if you have additional ones. And that's it for, for us today on Winner Take All. I will talk to you next week. Thank you.